Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. It's playoff time in hockey, basketball, football ready for the draft, baseball week two and week three of the opening season. We talk uh, Olympics long term. We have a lot to talk about. Amy Tenery, who's involved with the digital world of Reuters, is with us as she is at least monthly. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I am wonderful. We have a whole lot of diversity to talk about. So let's start in the courtroom and then we'll go to the boardroom. You know, it's interesting that the Rams clearly had the ability to move out of St. Louis. They did. The issue was, did they uh, stay in a first class stadium for too long or did they move out because it wasn't first class enough? Well, now maybe the courts will decide. St. Louis and its environs filed lawsuits, certainly not to bring them back, but for damages, and they're asking for everything there. What do you think of that whole situation? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting argument that they're making. Essentially, they're saying that they made improvements to their stadium based on an NFL good faith policy that the team would stay there and use these improvements. Now, I mean, we all know that when the Rams left, they, they left, you know, St. Louis with a lot of debt, something to, you know, uh, the tune of like, I think it's $144 million, uh, something like that in debt just from the maintenance costs of this facility. So I think the, the city's a little bit fed up. They're you know, named in the lawsuit is the league, all the teams and owners. To me, I'm wondering with all of the moves that are up in the air for the NFL, like Chargers to LA and Raiders to Vegas, do you feel like this is going to spook some of the, the team's ownership? Well, most of the deals have been done, if not all. So the one thing about the NFL is 32 deals are done with long-term leases. And frankly, they thought they were uh, out of all of this. The leverage of the Rams, the Chargers, and the Raiders has now been done with their respective moves. The NFL has never been required to return to a location. This will be ultimately something about damages. And it is a fairly novel argument. I was in that field for 900 years and understand what the economics are. And there is a specific lease. There are issues in the lease relative to first-class treatment. And it's really not one of those things about relying on some promises. It's very well spelled out in a negotiated lease. But the bigger issue really is the political cost of this. It is now finally the recognition of throwing in the towel from the city and county leadership and realizing we got a lot of debt and we don't know how to pay it. And so let's figure out how to get the NFL back on the hook. These lawsuits have not won in the past. So we'll just have to see what happens now. Yeah, to me, it's interesting, this idea of of good faith. You know, they're claiming that the team was in in private talking about moving to L.A. long before they disclosed this publicly. And they they cite, I think it was an interview with Jeff Fisher from 2016, where he said that when he was signed on to the team in 2012, that he was told they were already talking about moving to Los Angeles. So I'm wondering if they can... if they are able to prove definitively that this was in the works, if it'll make any difference at all. Obviously, I'm not a legal expert, but what do you think the likelihood of St. Louis being successful in this suit is? Uh, small, but possible. You know, when, if you get to a jury, anything is possible. Uh, the whole issue of talking about what the options might be long term 
if the first class piece of the lease is not continued versus definitively saying we're going to LA are two different things. So there would be testimony about what was meant and what the impact was, but the lease is specified, did you spend the money, did you not spend the money, uh, was it first class, was it not first class, and there were very specific uh, provisions in there. So I'm not sure they have a real good chance of winning this, but you know, you never say never. St. Louis, by the way, as you know, Amy, is, is uh, hit with a couple of other things. They, they, they don't have a basketball team, their hockey team has a 23-year-old building, and now they were looking to an MLS franchise, the public rejected stadium funding, the idea being Soccer City is going to have to wait for a while. 53% of the voters opposed to an MLS bid that included public funding of a 22,000-seat MLS stadium downtown. It was also tied to the Metrolink mass transit, which was approved 60%, but that's for other purposes now. You needed both to get the soccer team in, and it looks like the MLS will look for another city and St. Louis will look for another sport. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's uh, it's fairly undeniable that, you know, the Rams may have had an impact on how the voters feel about public funding for stadiums. I, I would be surprised if, if they're not a little bit fed up by this situation, a little bit disappointed. Um, my question to you and, and uh, is is if you think this is sort of the beginning of a tide change, are, are voters and constituents going to start saying, you know, these are bad deals and, and we're not putting up with it anymore. I, I know it's a topic that's been going around a lot, this idea of public funding for stadiums, but it, it, it doesn't really seem to have changed as a trend yet. It, it, do you think this is the beginning of that? Age-old question. I've been doing it, like we said, for a long time. U.S. Conference of Mayors had a stadium summit that I was lucky enough to moderate last week in suburban Dallas, Frisco. And quite the contrary, most of the mayors there understood how important it was for the future to build these infrastructure facilities, parks like streets, like other kinds of infrastructure, and they're willing to put public investment in it in some case. And when you look at the numbers, $24 billion over the last 20 years, $14 billion public, $10 billion private. So it is not a trend. St. Louis just has some issues that they've got to get resolved. And, and, I, and I think when you think about the NFL, they've got to take a look at other revenue sources as well because the stadium pieces are basically all done. Now they go to the next step. And, you know, speaking of revenue, Amazon did a one-year deal of $50 million, a massive spike from the $10 million Twitter paid uh, for the streaming. That's to of, me. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Like, $50 million from $10 million? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but wow. I mean, do you think that's just way overblown? No. It's way overblown if the market didn't do it. And so that's it is true. interesting that we would all be aghast about it, but, you know, Twitter's one-year deal was a success, and now you open it up to others. And new companies positioning themselves to assess their role as major media players. So you may see Amazon and this 50 million, along with Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, YouTube, bidding against traditional networks for TV rights in the future. You're aghast about that uh, for the 10 versus 50, but get used to it, huh? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you make a good point. I mean, the market says yes, the market says yes. And uh, clearly, the streaming is, is the way of the future, online streaming for not just you know NFL, but any number of, of leagues. I'm going to be interested to see if Amazon can convert this into more viewers. Um, you know, given the the fact that you know in any any bar households, you know, in America has has football on on Thursday night, you're you're going to have to be able as a as a streaming provider to prove that there is a need for streaming. You know, beyond people who are 
I don't know, sitting around the airport waiting to depart. I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the viewership is. I, I don't know that I necessarily expect viewership to be, you know, five times greater than it was on Twitter, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, and you hit it on the business head to mix metaphors. <laughs> the bottom line is, can you monetize 250,000 viewers streaming like Amazon has monetized off of Twitter, meaning that they're bidding five times higher than Twitter? And does that mean that if you have a chance of watching Thursday Night Football, you watch it on the football network, NFL network, you watch it on either NBC or CBS, and you watch it streaming. And so you can't have three sets of eyeballs, and where do you watch? And you may say enough is enough, but I agree. It's all about leverage, and it's all about getting inside the NFL tent, right? Yeah, I will be very interested to see how this plays out during the season. I think it could go any number of directions. And, and like we've said in the past, you know, streaming, online streaming seems to be, you know, the way things are going. So far be it for me to be the, the, old, the old fogey being left in the dust by the future. Well... You're not the old fogey left in the dust by anything, and we could all talk about how we don't like the new system, but the market will bear, and there's $50 million more in the pockets of the NFL. Let's shift from the two-legged athlete to the four-legged athlete. Right before the Derby race weekend in a couple of weeks, Churchill Downs unveils a new $16 million clubhouse renovation, 95,000-square-foot new clubhouse, 13,000 guests for Oaks or Derby Day, and facility renovation, as we said, and modernization is critical in all sports, even for the athletes who have four legs, not for two, economic impact, stability, not just baseball, football, basketball, hockey, but every kind of sport as well, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I was saying earlier to my coworker that this idea of a $16 million renovation is almost quaint compared to the costs that we're, we're looking at for stadium renovations in other sports. I think in a lot of ways, you know, the average consumer maybe underestimates the economic impact that, that horse racing has, given that the average person probably only focuses on horse racing, you know, three days out of the year. But I, I noticed you had an article from last year where you, you were saying that Derby actually has a $400 million economic impact on the region and and statewide has about a four billion dollar impact do you see the, the renovation as, as a bet on the future of, of horse racing or is this going to become more mainstream you know it's obviously waned in popularity from its heyday but you know maybe this is a, a sign of the times many answers to that you know really insightful question horse racing itself has been in a state of trouble beyond the triple crown so the derby a linchpin of the successful part but with off-track betting and with internet gaming and with all of the other diversions, it's harder to get the non-mainstream fan to go to these events, which means if you're Kentucky and you realize how important the horse racing industry is to your state, you darn well better make sure that the owners of Churchill Downs and others put substantial money into a facility and make it a long-term commitment. So it is a bet on the future, but it's also basically a bet on the economic impact of Kentucky. And as we said, facilities are the key to the big values in sports, which segues us back to baseball. Marlins had a new facility a while ago, and now, according to Fox Business, the Marlins are looking for an auction type of sale. David Sampson, the president, talking to people that include Florida Governor Jeff Bush, uh, former Major Leaguer Derek Jeter, and others and others, and the offer on the table, at least in the media, a billion six. That's a lot of money for a baseball team. 
That really does seem like a tremendous amount of, of money. I think, I, I, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I was sort of researching this earlier, and I think as recently as about five years ago, the Marlins were really only valued at around 500-ish million dollars. So to go from that to 1.6 billion is just a huge leap. And I'm wondering if there's something driving sort of the the inflation behind these team sales, whether it's the celebrity factor, are you getting more celebrity owners? So it has a certain cachet beyond just the nuts and bolts of the the product of the team itself. Um, Is there something behind this or are they just completely out to lunch on it? How is a Major League Baseball team like the Mona Lisa? Well, two reasons. One is if you're the Marlins and the fans, you don't smile either. And the second huh. is, yeah, well, and they're, getting, they're getting worse before they get better. But the second is, which is really relevant to the point, is a team, a painting, something unique, is worth only what people are willing to buy, uh, pay for it. And so uh, we understand Forbes and all the other uh, magazines and publications that value franchises based on traditional ROI and other variables that business shows want to talk about. But at the end of the day, it's all about having something that other people want and can't have and have a very exclusive club. Stephen Ross, the owner of the other team in South Florida with big numbers, the Dolphins, made a statement to me when we interviewed him. He said, why did you pay a billion dollars for the franchise? And he said, well, because I can afford to and I wanted to keep it away from other people. And so that, that's the mentality here, I think. Interesting bottom line. Not sure they're going to get it, but they're going to ask for it. Yeah, rich people like their, like their shiny toys, um, you know, so why not? I guess if you can... You would do it. I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, not only if if they actually get an offer close to that, but uh, how badly New York City will riot if Derek Jeter goes down and runs the Marlins. I don't. I don't know. I, I would be interested to see to see who actually steps up on this. Spoken like a true New York baseball fan, although as I remember it. You root for the team on the other side of town, is that correct? I do root for the team on the other side of town. I was going to say, if my if my Mets have anything to do with it, Marlins fans aren't going to be smiling tonight either because uh, they're they're down in Miami as, as we speak. They're going to be playing at 7 o'clock. Well, thank you for the promo. We'll have to cut this pretty quick and get it <laughs> on the air so we can deal with it. But by the way, one other quick thing as we segue there, you know, you astutely ask about the value of franchises, and one of the big reasons why Major League Baseball franchises are increasing in value significantly is the Internet and advanced media. Uh, Major League Baseball advanced media uh, was kind of glorified and created in January 2000 when all 30 MLB owners voted to centralize all of baseball's Internet and interactive media operations under one roof. And so they encode on an annual basis and capture more than 30,000 live events. They've got a relationship with the National Hockey League. And the guy that runs it all, since it is baseball season, and we were lucky enough to get him for a while, named Bob Bowman. He's the president of business and media for MLB and the advanced media, Wharton School, MBA, Harvard College. Uh, he's involved in all things baseball, but most importantly, all things internet for your Mets and everybody else. And We caught up to him at the Sloan MIT conference, Bob Bowman. The cacophony has died down a little bit, Rick Haro, Sloan MIT analytics. We're through lunch. Everybody's still trying to sell 
the people on my right, varying degrees of intensity. Bob Bowman, people are really trying to sell you hard because everybody wants something from you because you are probably the most successful, proven internet guru of any team sport and probably the most successful on the planet. How's that for starters? Well, I, I don't think any of that's true, but I'll tell you what, it's, it's like being a rich kid. If you get born with, to rich parents, it's a lot easier. We have great content. Baseball was ideally made for the digital world. Uh, we play every day, so it's part of your habit. Big advantage. You can come to the third inning, come to the seventh inning. It's a lot of fun because the narrative is not usually the final score. It's something else. So if you have, if you were inventing a sport for the digital age, you'd invent baseball. Yeah. Let's assume, however, that 50% is content and the other 50% is light in light management. So when it's 2000 and you are now taking the helm of a semi-functional ship with 30 people rowing in somewhat different directions, and you, you're told organize, harmonize, make a lot of money, and make it look like a public company, and make a lot of revenue. Easier said than done, you did it. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you it was you know, as hard as you're making it sound. The owners were behind us every step of the way. We had one commissioner you know, who supported us, and now we have another commissioner who supports us. And so it would be, it would be a better story if I could tell you how difficult it was and all these hills we overcame. The simple fact was everyone wanted this to succeed. The owners as much as we, if not more so. And the players and the fans, everybody wanted it to succeed, and we, you know, we were able to help, you know, help not get in the way too much. But the leap of faith, Bob Bowman, was in 2000 for you, whatever your numbers were you represented to the owners to have them take the leap of faith. There was a risk that the Internet wouldn't be as uh, uh, sophisticated and as visionary and as fruitful as it's become. It, it surpassed anybody's expectations as far as, as, as being able to deliver revenue. Yeah, I, I think this. I, certainly, uh, the Internet has certainly su surpassed a lot of the early prognostications. But my own view is you never bet against technology. Right. Uh, whether it's in the automobile, whether it's in the home, or whether it's in your back pocket on a phone, uh, you fight technology that's a losing fight. And so we always knew that we had a great game, and we always knew technology was on our side. What we didn't know, to be fair though, Rick, is, is it 2003 or 2006? Is it 2006 or 2009? But ultimately, we knew technology was going to be our biggest ally. The idea of sports, live sports, stick and ball sports, being the ultimate reality show vis-a-vis uh, -vis the ability to archive and replay but the internet is based on now the ability. My daughters, they don't know how to watch live television anymore. How do you reconcile all of that? Yeah, I think, I think we've got to be really concerned about people like your daughter. Yeah. We can't assume that just because it's live, she will go right. to the device we tell her to. Right. I think we're all worried about how do we make sure and, how to, and, and the commissioner worries about how do we distribute our product in every screen so your daughter and the daughter behind her can watch it on the screen of her choice wherever she is, however she wants to do it. Uh, and if we don't do it, we really risk losing them. But I don't. I think our, our I know our commissioner gets that, and and we're working down that road. I think it's. I think we've been successful so far in getting our games distributed. Your other commissioner got it. Your current commissioner got it. They're part of the same coaching tree, so to speak. How easy and seamless has the transition been? It's been great. The the biggest difference for us who work for Rob is that he's there every day in New York. Uh, he does his homework. He reads the memos. He knows what he's doing. And so, as I said earlier today, you have to bring your A game to a meeting with him. He, he understands and he has a purpose there and he leans forward. Uh, so it's re refreshing. Uh, Commissioner Seeley was great, but, but Commissioner, you know, 
this, the Rob Manfred's the right guy now, and I, I think everyone's really excited about where baseball's going to be in 10 years. What are the biggest challenges from the new media perspective uh, that you face on a daily basis? Well, I think we all face the same challenges, which is competition. And I don't mean from football or basketball. Right. I mean from everything else that's going on. You know, we worry about where the eyeballs are and how people engage and how they, you know, are they going to follow baseball instead of what we do. I think that's what we worry about. We wake up every day saying, how are we going to get seven, 10, 20 minutes of this person's time today and get the mind share and the time share on the device. That's what we worry about. So international audiences, Reuters, uh, how do we have new media help facilitate the inevitable Major League Baseball and other baseball penetrations uh, across the pond and everywhere else. I think we're doing that. You know, we already we've distributed things digitally, but I think this commissioner has made international a real focal point for him. Tony Petiti runs the international yeah. group for us, and he's made it a real focal point to have international be there. So I think you're going to see the World Baseball Classic, which which starts this week, this coming week. The commissioner's going to be there. He's going to be in the East to try and see these teams play, and we're going to all culminate all with our championship over on the on the West Coast. And I think that's a big thing developing these teams developing baseballs you know the ability to play baseball in these countries is important uh, so people can see it and, and see it every day but I also think you know getting the major league teams to play in Mexico or the UK which Tony and the commissioner are working on you have to show them the best product too uh, you have to develop from the ground up but every now and then you got to show them the best product he this commissioner's made I think far more so than Commissioner Seelig this commissioner's made international development a vital part of his success Everybody around is, is obsessed with uh, appealing to the new millennials, pace of play, all of those issues. Your job, by definition, is a classic poster child of appealing to new millennials because of devices. Uh, how does it all reconcile? Are you uh, a voice of uh, expediting play and, and the deal that was just done with Game of Thrones and all of the things to make sure it's more appealing to the young audience? You know, I think our game is really good. I, I go to a lot of baseball games, and, and while I'm not a millennial, I've got a short attention span. <laughs> yeah. And so I think our game is really good. And I think what the commissioner is trying to do is say, yep, we have a really good game, but we ought to be constantly and ever vigilant to try and take out sort of times that are slow. You know, whether it's, as he's talked about, whether it's, you know, mound visits, but right, right now it's really, it's the replay. And, and he's instituted a rule that says, after two minutes, if you can't reverse the call, the call stands. Let's just, you know, you nibble at the fringes, you always want to be leaning forward to try and make it better. But make no mistake about it, our game is really good. 75 million people go to the stand, go to the stadiums every year. Hundreds of millions of people watch this game on TV every year. Obviously, hundreds of millions go connect with it digitally. So our game is in good shape. It doesn't, but that makes you ever vigilant to keep making it, trying to make it better. Just a couple more. The media issues as they evolve. So I assume you reach out to a variety of the bosses, the owners, to get their different perspectives. I mean, John Henry now has a lot of New England audience. The Globe, newspapers, right. old news, new news, the evolution of that. How does that process work? You know, we have team, you know, John Henry, has been in baseball since I've been in baseball. He owned, the, yeah. you know, he used to own the Marlins. Now he owns the Red Sox. But John Henry's a pretty typical owner in the sense that these folks are engaged. Uh, they really worry. They almost all of them, and all of them love baseball. Uh, so that is a passion of theirs. But they're really successful business people. These are not. These are not people yeah. who woke up and said, geez, let's go buy a baseball team. These are really smart business people that know how to run a business and are engaged in all the aspects of the business. So we're lucky in, the, in that way that we get to learn from them and they give us advice and we generally always figure out a, better, a way to get to the right place. But I think that's one of the real, one thing I didn't anticipate the benefits of the job that I have is the, the valuable input that we get from owners saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And he particularly, I mean, he buys a newspaper and now he's attempting to make it relevant for the next 50 years. 
years. It's well, look where the Washington, look where the Washington Post and New York Times have done. Uh, their subscription levels are going through the roof, yeah. and I think so. I think he once again proved prescient. Just like he did with the Red Sox, bought it at the right time. He bought the Globe at the right time, uh, and I think he's going to be very successful. He's been successful in almost everything he's done. Final concept: You are now a full-service organization where the NHL contracts with you to uh, uh, generate some additional uh, uh, views, looks, strategy, service. Is that a long-term goal? Do you want to be all things to all people? I think the our thought is this: is that the more that there's good content that's streamed and on devices, the better chance baseball will have to succeed. Uh, it, it just being there by yourselves sounds great and sounds like you wouldn't have competition, but until people come to understand that live sports is going to look great on their phone, whether they happen to be a hockey fan, a basketball fan, or a football fan, that's, you know, that, that's a bad place. So we want all these sports streamed. We're going to get our share of audience. Our, our game does really well against all the other games, but we want people, every person, whether they're six or 76, we want them to understand, take out your phone, there's going to be a live sport that you love on it. Let's remember that. And here's an example of, of the leverage that this guy brings to the table of running a fiefdom of 30 entities providing some amazing content. Eight minutes up and out, 7.46. I was, was that good? Well done. You should, you should do this for a living. <laughs> Forget it. I don't want to do it for a living. Thank you, nice my to friend. see you. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.